You know, I get a chance to be exposed to a lot of books through my ministry. Part of it is just my due diligence as a pastor to make sure that I'm informed in the word and in what's happening in the world so I can lead us faithfully as well. I, I, I count it a great privilege, but also a serious and sobering task to stand before you every week. And I want to be prepared in that. But I'm also exposed to a lot of books because of uh, the nature of my radio program that I get a chance to do. I wish I could tell you that every book had the same weight on my soul, struck me the same, encouraged me the same, was equally as meaningful to me. But that would be a lie. That's not true. Um, I enjoy reviewing them all, but there are some that have uh, more significant impact on my heart and soul. And if you were to ask me what book has meant the most to you over the past year or so, without doing slight to others, I would say uh, this book that I hold in my hand, uh, it's called Faith in the Wilderness. I don't know why I held it up. You can't see it, but <laughs> I'll read you the title. It's called Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. These, uh, for those of you who, who know what, it, what, what China means by way of the oppressive government there, uh, religious opposition, you can only imagine what it must mean to be an evangelical pastor in China, many of them house church pastors. But we've recently begun to hear their stories from their own words. You know, typically when we hear about persecution around the world, it is Westerners telling the story of what they, they've seen, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's also very powerful when we hear them in their own voices and in their own words. And what this book is, Faith in the Wilderness, it's really sermonic letters translated from these house pastors as they share their own story of persecution but faithfulness to God. One of the most famous is a pastor named Wang Yi. Wang Yi is currently serving a 45-year prison sentence for refusing to recant his testimony of Jesus and refusing to... Uh, submit to the uh, Chinese government. And um, in one of the passages, he writes this. Listen to these words. One day, this regime will be personally subverted by God. He will punish and avenge and bring justice for all the sins committed uh, against his church. Those who hold me will be detained by angels. The person who interrogates me will eventually be interrogated by Christ. With this in mind, the Lord has made me sympathetic and sad for those who hold me. Ask the Lord to use me, to give me patience and wisdom to bring the gospel to them. These are powerful words that are written from a man's heart who knows his future. You, you can't write like this unless you know the promise of what the future holds, that God has the final word on sin and evil, on death and justice, that ultimately God will right every injustice, that ultimately every evil, every sin will come to account. He writes of a future day where God himself will subvert personally the regime that's holding him. That's him looking to the future. That's him knowing his future and allowing his future to impact him today. He writes of the ones who hold him being eventually detained by angels. That's him appropriating the future on the present. He writes of the ones who interrogate him today that one day they will be interrogated. That is a man who knows the end of his Bible and is appropriating it today with much hope. 
But I find it interesting what attitude, what disposition this produces in Pastor Wang Yi. It certainly doesn't produce one of arrogance or pride. It produces rather a pretty unexpected humility. And his humbleness is seen here. Ask the Lord to use me. Why? Because I feel sympathetic and sad for those who are holding me. Why? Because he knows that for those who have rejected Christ, there is a fearful day of judgment that awaits on the horizon. So his prayer is that he would have patience and wisdom to bring the gospel to them. I bring this up, I read this today because in many ways it is a great prelude to the passage that we're going to read today. We're going to be reading from the book of Revelation chapter 20. You can join me there. We're in a series called All Things New. And today we get a chance to read eight verses, verses 7 through 15, that are some of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. Honestly, they are verses that most pastors would rather avoid. It would be nice if every sermon that I gave to you was about rainbows and roses. Be nice if every message uh, was uh, about deserting uh, the goodness, the grace, and the compassion of God expressed through kindness. But that is only one part of his character. Now, the passage presented to us today is a terrible passage. Not terrible in the uh, contemporary sense of the word, meaning bad or evil. No, the word of God is never that but terrible in the classic sense of the word, holy and fearful. It's a passage that is designed specifically as a warning to us of the day that is to come to provoke the fear of the Lord in our hearts. And whether we like it or not, the fear of the Lord is a great gift to us. You see, the fear of the Lord, the Bible describes as the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, when properly understood, leads us to a repentance that produces salvation. The fear of the Lord is a gift from God. These verses that we're about to read are about the end of human history as we now know it. It's about this present age known as the church age giving way to what will be called the kingdom age where we will have a new heaven and a new earth. But before that new age is ushered in, in between this age and the age to come, there is the business of judgment. And we will see God in Christ judging the world. He will have the final say-so as it pertains to sin and evil and even death. Let's pick up in verse number seven. The first thing we see is the defeat of Satan. Listen to these words. John writing, and when the thousand years are ended, this is referring to the millennial reign of Christ. We read about this last week, that Christ will reign for a thousand years. Satan will be bound to deceive the nations no more. What happens at the end of that thousand years? It says Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. That means across all of the earth, Gog and Magog, referring to Ezekiel 37 and 38, these nations that mount a battle against God's people going on, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What a sobering again passage. What a passage of the ultimate victory of God. What's given to us is this very stark picture of what happens after the thousand year reign of Christ. And it's interesting that the first thing that we read after the thousand year reign of Christ is that Satan is released from his imprisonment. Now we have been falsely taught to assume through the uh, penal and penitentiary system of our nation that the purposes of jails and prisons is to bring reform. But what most criminals will tell you is that jail doesn't reform you. For most criminals, they will tell you that jail only makes them better criminals. Certainly, this is the case for Satan. What we read after he has been in prison for a thousand years, that as soon as he is released, the first thing he does is go back to deceiving the nations. The first thing he does is re-engage in his war against all that is God, all that is godly, all that is holy, all that belongs to God. The first thing he does is demonstrate that he has not been reformed. He has not learned one lesson. And this is a reminder to us of what sin actually is. That sin is not as much an action as it is a nature. That just as when I am coughing or sneezing or have a runny nose or fever, those are symptoms of a deeper sickness, so it is when we are lying and unfaithful, when we are demonstrating uh, animosity, hatred, when we are acting in malicious and evil ways towards one another, those are symptoms of a deeper sickness. And the deeper sickness is I have a sin nature. And the only way to deal with that sin nature is through Jesus Christ. Affluence and more education does not solve our sin problem. More money does not solve our sin problem. More exposure, more things do not solve our sin problem. There is only one that can eradicate sin in the world and, yes, in the human heart, and that is Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the elixir for sin. And I pray that you will remember that throughout this message because woe to those who don't remember that to those who reject his offer of grace and mercy, because this is a picture of a day in which God will judge. Let's shift for a moment from Satan to us. Didn't you find it interesting as we read this text that not only did he go back to deceiving after a thousand years, but we were so quickly to be deceived? That after a thousand year reign of Christ, it is almost so hard to say this, it's almost so hard to imagine that after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ in which Satan is in prison and bound, that as soon as he is released to deceive the nations, the nations follow his deception in mass. 
So many follow his deception that the scripture says that they have to fall, uh, uh, walk through a great plain for this battle that is going to take place because they are as numerous as the sand of the sea. How quickly we are deceived. How quickly we are misled. But let's remember what James teaches us, that when we are tempted, we are not tempted by God. But each man, each woman, when they are tempted, are drawn away by their own lust. It is our lust for power, control, our lust for autonomy and pleasure that Satan preys upon. He knows that we want these things. He knows that we would much rather enthrone ourselves as Lord of our own lives than to allow Jesus to be Lord of all. And so he deceives and man follows. And so it is even in this hour that there's so much great deception in this world. And this is why we have to preach about sin. Friends, I wish I didn't have to always have to bring up the reality of sin, but I do so because I love you. And when you love someone, you love them enough at times even to offend them. I think about the current cultural moment that we're in, how hard it must be for children. For those of you who are older, uh, you were blessed to be raised in a time where the scriptures, the word of God, Christianity, maybe wasn't always at the forefront, but at least it had not lost the consciousness of men. There was at least something in our remembrance of what is right and what is wrong. We live in a generation that doesn't even know those categories anymore. Where the only thing that is wrong is to say that somebody's wrong. The only thing that is offensive is to say that someone's behavior is somehow sinful. We live in a generation that's forgotten how to blush. A generation that knows no category of behavior that is forbidden. Can you imagine what it is to be a child raised in this type of culture, a young adult raised in this type of culture where the only prevailing message you hear over and over again is follow your heart, do what seems to be enjoyable to you? So what does it mean for us to be faithful witnesses in this type of culture? Well, I've come to believe that the greatest thing that I can do, maybe the greatest gift I can give to my children, and maybe even a broader culture, is simply to remember and to remind. You see, this is what Satan is after. What Satan is after is this hope that we will forget, that we will forget that God has spoken, that we will forget that there is a moral law giver who has already given us his moral law. That we will forget that it is not up to us to determine what is right and what is wrong, but, but God determines what is right and what is wrong. That we will somehow forget that there is a day that's coming in which he will judge. What do we see at his judgment? Well, we see here that there's this great battlefield and Satan is ultimately defeated and thrown into the lake of fire and it's interesting because he is surrounding what the Bible calls God's beloved city, the camp of the saints. This is referring to Jerusalem. This is the final battle being mounted against Israel. The people of God, 
God fulfills his ultimate promise. Now, what you must understand about Israel is that Israel has always been small in nature. The Jewish people who are precious to the heart of God have always been outnumbered. They've always uh, been outgunned. The nation certainly here believe that they have outmaneuvered them. But what has sustained the people of God that Satan seems to continually forget and what sustains us the church who have trusted in Jesus by faith, what sustains is the grace and the mercy of God. The scriptures put it this way, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How many thank God that you got more than the armies of men on your side, that you got God on your side? And so they surround thinking, certainly we have them outgunned, certainly we have them outnumbered, Certainly we have them outmaneuvered, but God in one moment shows Satan how frail and how small he is and fire rains down from heaven and consumes them. The picture that we have here is the picture of uh, something you often see on a football field where a team is down, they're defeated, there's only seconds left on the clock, they have the ball on their two or three yard line, already down by a touchdown, and they throw a desperate Hail Mary that everybody knows won't work. And this is what Satan is trying to do. But God has already proclaimed that our enemy is defeated. And this is the picture that sustains believers today. This picture is designed to do two things within our hearts. For Pastor Wang Yi and for those who have trusted in Jesus, it is to give us a hope that while on this side of heaven, justice seems all too elusive, no matter how great the justice system is in our country, there are always going to be people who slip through the cracks. There are always going to be bad guys who get off. There's always going to be moments where it seems like evil wins. But there is a, a day that's coming where justice will not be elusive. God will hold account and God will bring about justice for his people. As Pastor Wayne Yee says it, that God will judge Satan and those who follow him for every sin that was committed against his church. But this passage is also given to provoke the fear of the Lord for those who may be are in this auditorium who have rejected the testimony of Christ. You see, I never assume that just because you're in the church means you've trusted in Jesus. You could be here and be a skeptic. You could be here and be an unbeliever. You could be here and be churchy, but not saved. This is to sober us up, to wake us up from all of the entertainment through which we amuse ourselves to death, to the fact that there's a day coming in which God will judge. I told you these are sobering verses, but a gift to our souls, no doubt. The scene quickly shifts as we go on to verse number 11 from a battlefield to a courtroom. And it says in verse number 11, John writing, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, 
according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Skip with me, if you will, to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, now is a courtroom. And when we walk into this courtroom, I want to paint a picture for you. It's never um, a happy day when you got to go to court. Can I get an amen? It's never been a day that I've ever visited a courtroom where I felt just totally at ease or at peace. Make no mistake about it, this is a judgment day. This is sentencing day. The verdict has already been rendered concerning guilt. The Bible calls this the second death. We'll see that in a moment. If you remember last week, we read that those who have trusted in Jesus will not have to stand before this known as a great white throne judgment. This is a judgment for those who have rejected Jesus. But again, this is sentencing day. And sitting on the throne is Jesus. Now, what is amazing to me upon investigation of this passage is who is not mentioned here. No mention of angels. No mention of the four living creatures that will praise him by day and by night. No mention of seraphim or cherubim. No mention of them. It is as if Jesus is saying, no, this is a, a personal moment. This is a moment where I, with the blazing eyes of a resurrected Savior, get to pierce into the souls of those who counted my grace as nothing of value. Get to look into the souls of those who have rejected my love, looked upon my sacrifice for their sins on the cross as a small thing. So we walk into the courtroom, and the first thing we see, according to John, is a great white throne. This is an enormous throne fit for the king of kings, fit for the ruler of the universe. It is great, meaning that it is powerful. It is white, meaning that it is pure. It's a throne, meaning that it has been vested with all authority, power, purity, authority. This is what we have in Jesus. Friends, the Bible gives us several scenes or pictures of Jesus, and it's important that we know all of those. There's the scene of the baby in the manger that comes into the world frail, meek, and mild. There's the picture of the suffering servant, the Savior on the cross who dies for the sins of the world. These are neither, this picture is neither of those because there is another scene that is coming in this unfolding saga of redemption, and that is Jesus, judge of all humanity. And who's in the courtroom? Who has to stand before God? Those who have rejected him. And if you have rejected him, know this, you will be summoned and you will appear because no one gets off. Notice that the sea gives up their dead. Death and Hades gives up its dead. That everyone living and dead will have to stand before him. And there are these books 
These books that should send trembling through our hearts that record meticulously my deeds and yours. There are certain books I wish I could throw away. There are certain moments in my life that I wish I could edit. Certain mistakes and failures that I've made that I wish could not be remembered. But isn't it a good thing to know that if you have been washed in the blood of Jesus, the Bible says not only have we been separated from our sins as far as the east is from the west, but he promises to remember our sins no more. How many thank God for that grace? But I would not be doing you a service if I said that was a promise for everyone, because it is not. For those who have counted pleasure and power and prosperity in this world more valuable than Christ, there are books that have been meticulously kept by angels that will be presented to God and each man's deed will be laid bare before him and the Lord. And imagine what the weight of guilt and sin will feel like when you stand before the one who loved you most. I'll never forget one of the big mistakes I made as a kid. I was in second grade and I wanted to show off to my friends. I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of money. One morning, I saw my mom's wallet open. And there was a $20 bill there. To a second grader, a $20 bill is like a million bucks, by the way. So I went to school and I'm flashing it to all my buddies, all my friends. One of my teachers sees me, calls my mom and lets her know, hey, Chris is at school flashing money. You may want to know about that. I got called in. My mom says, wait till you get home. I knew what that means. You can interpret yourself. <laughs> and then as a second grader, only a second grader can, I devised this phenomenal plan that if I'm not caught with the money on me, she can't prove I did it. So on the way home, I'm walking by this backyard, guy's cutting his grass, I take the $20 bill, throw it at his backyard. That was even worse. If you're in second grade, don't do that. Don't do, don't do that. My advice to you. I get home, and my mom didn't spank me. I don't even know if she grounded me. I just remember these words, and it was crushing for a second grader. She looked at me and she says, Chris, I can't trust you. My mama, the one who loved me most, couldn't trust me. I would have preferred a spanking. I would have preferred punishment, grounding. Imagine the weight of your sin when you look in the eyes of the only one who loved you enough to die for you. The one who knows you exhaustively and still says, come to me. The one who's willing to cover your sins and mine in his loving grace and mercy. Imagine when the books are opened there. Again, this day is only for those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And we will stand before him and he will judge. Not only will Satan be defeated, but sin will be judged. And then finally, 
Verse number 14, death will be destroyed. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Why is all of this given to us? It's given to us for two reasons, I believe. The first illustration I'd like to give to you is this. I think it's given to us for the same reason horror movies are given to us. Anybody remember when you were a kid and you go see a scary movie? Anybody remember that? What was that night like? Lights on in a room, flashes of images from the movie come to your mind. You just want to be held, reminded that you're safe. This is what this passage is meant to do is to provoke a fear of the Lord in you that drives you into his arms. We are still in the dispensation of grace. We are still in a moment where we can be forgiven. Let the sobering, terrible words of this passage drive you into the loving arms of a saving and sovereign Savior. But the second thing it's meant to provoke within us is remembrances of Christmas. You may say, Chris, how do you marry a horror movie and Christmas together? Well, for the believer, it's meant to remind us of the greatest gift we've ever received. I don't know what your greatest Christmas gift is. I've talked about mine, my beloved snowblower. I'll talk about that later, (laughs) another time. But I don't know what your greatest Christmas gift is, but the greatest gift you and I have ever received is the grace of God, our loving God given to us in salvation. So now I invite you to stand with me. We're going to close with a song. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a song. But as they prepare to lead us, I want you to search your heart today. Ask yourself, is today the day of my salvation? Is today the day where I need to repent and give my heart to the Lord? Maybe for the first time or maybe coming back to him but also pray for those of us who have believed that we will be spurred on to greater witness and evangelism as we remember and remind. Amen.